take your Bibles and turn to Numbers chapter 17. Numbers chapter 17. I told Jimmy to hold on. Last week, Stephen was supposed to preach through chapter 18. And uh, when he got done and came and sat down, he leaned over and said, Sorry, I missed two chapters. So they're all yours. So um, I was supposed to preach 19 and 20 today. I'm not going to get to 20. We're going to. I was going to skim at 17, 18, and 19 and get to 20, um, but then I started studying them, and there's just way too much to get there. So uh, I told Jimmy I'd try to get you out before 3, so we'll, we'll be all right. So Numbers chapter 17, just want to back up a little bit and remind you that we have been studying and seeing in Numbers the rebellion of the people of Israel, okay? It's been evident for, since Numbers 14. Okay, in, in Numbers 14, verse 6, the people have said, you know what, we're going to choose a new leader, we're going to go back to Egypt, everything was better back in Egypt, and so they were ready to bail, and they said, it's time, to, we're, we're out of here, we're going to get a new leader, and we're leaving. And so, they had decided that they did not believe the command of God, that they weren't going to go into the promised land, then they tried on their own, and they were defeated in battle. Remember, they tried to go up, and they were defeated. And then last week we saw that Korah and Dathan and Abiram had challenged Moses and Aaron's leadership in chapter 16. And as their leadership was challenged, God had opened up the earth and swallowed them up and their families. And we saw at the end last week in chapter 16, verse 41, right after God has judged these families, he's opened up the earth, he's swallowed them, their tents, their entire families, as they are swallowed up, what happens? The very next day, the congregation decides, you know what? We're not happy. And so they rebel and begin to grumble against Moses and against Aaron. And if you remember that, that God begins to kill the people, and Aaron and Moses fall on their face before God and begin to plead, and Aaron looks over and says, take your censer, put on fire, and and carry it quickly before the congregation. And Aaron runs out there and 14,700 people had died. But Aaron runs out there and the plague is stopped. And Aaron returns to Moses at the end of, at the entrance of the temple meeting at the end of chapter 16 when the plague is stopped. And you have to ask yourself the question. Moses and Aaron have to be asking the question. Maybe we're just not cut out for this. I mean, God obviously chose us back there in Egypt or out in the wilderness. He chose in the desert as Moses is his shepherd. He had chosen him at the burning bush. He had told them. He has been leading them. He brought them out of Egypt. He's led them around the wilderness. But it just doesn't seem like they like us. They aren't going to follow us. They've tried to replace us. They've tried a coup. They've tried everything. And so we get to chapter 17, and God decides, you know what, we are going to have a test. I am going to demonstrate that I have my leaders. And so look at chapter 17, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and get from them staves, one for each father's house, from all their chiefs, according to their father's house, twelve staffs. Write each man's name on his staff, and write Aaron's name on the staff of Levi. For there shall be one staff for the head of each father's house. So they get these 12 staffs. They get the leaders of these tribes. They get their staffs. They bring them in. 
They write their names on it. So there's no hanky-panky. There's no sleight of hand. There's no switching of staffs. They said, this is it. God says, bring the staffs. We're going to have a trial. And you deposit them in the tent of meeting. What was in the tent of meeting? The presence of God, right? So take them, put them in the tent of meeting with the testimony, the law, which was in the ark, right? And so here it is. This is where I meet with you. The staff of the men whom I choose shall sprout. Thus I will make a cease to me the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against you. Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and all their chiefs gave him staves, one for each chief, according to their father's house, twelve staves. And the staves of Aaron was among the staves, and Moses deposited the staves before the Lord in the tent of testimony. And on the next day, Moses went into the tent of testimony, and behold, the staff of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and brought forth buds, produced blossoms, and it bore ripe almonds. Then Moses brought out all the staffs from before the Lord to all the people of Israel, and they looked, and each man took his staff. And the Lord said to Moses, put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony to keep, to be kept as a sign for the rebels that you may make an end of their grumblings against who? Me. Lest they die. And thus Moses did Moses as the Lord commanded him, so he did. So what's going on here? God says, bring these 12 tribal leaders, bring each staff, put their name on it. And just in case there's a staff, there's confusion, make sure you get the name on it and put it in here overnight in the tent of meeting before God. And so they bring them, they put them in the tent, and they next morning Moses goes in there and he brings out these 12 staffs. And just in case, just in case something had happened that had made it a little questionable, he does what? God does not just have a bud show up on Aaron's staff. It does what? He says four things here. It had sprouted, it had put forth buds, it had produced blossoms, and it bore ripe almonds. The almond, almond was the, the crop, the first bearing crop after winter. And so here, this staff, it comes in and it's not like, oh, there's a little green shoot and maybe they switched it out. No, this staff had sprouted, it had blossomed, it had budded, it had an alm- almonds on it. God was saying, this is my leader. Because if there's anything that God is showing both Moses and Aaron, and he's showing the people of Israel, when you rebel against the leader that God has put over you, you are rebelling against God. And he said, Moses and Aaron, while you have this desire, while I'm sure you question your leadership skills, though you read every leadership book known to man, and they keep rebelling, I just made that up. Okay, everything that you can question about yourself, Moses and Aaron, understand this, I chose you, and when they rebel against you, they rebel against me. And so God has for them this sign, and he says to Moses, all right, everybody see, here's the staff, it's got almonds on it, everybody understands, everybody sees it, everybody knows it, yep, all right. Don't give it back to Aaron. Because God knows something about mankind. God knows that all men are sinners. And our hearts are drawn away from God. And God says, Moses, do what with that staff? 
put the staff of Aaron before the testimony to keep it as a sign for the rebels. God knows that in the very heart, and he should, obviously we know just from the history that we read of Israel, Israel had a heart to rebel against God, right? They were always whining, always grumbling, always complaining. But let's not be too hard on Israel. Folks, that is our hearts bend to rebel against God. To complain about God's leadership. Listen, teenagers, when you complain and whine about kids, when you complain and whine about the parents God gave you, guess what? You are complaining and rebelling against God. Ephesians 6. Folks, when we complain and rebel against the leaders, political leaders that have been set up over us, we are rebelling and complaining against God. Read Romans 13. The people that we have that God has set up as leaders over us have been set up by God. And God says, Moses and Aaron, when they rebel against you, they're rebelling against me. So here's what we're going to do. Take that staff that is budded and has these almonds on it. And put it before the testimony to keep us a sign for the rebels that you may make an end of their grumblings against me lest they die. We are in continual need of reminding of what God has done for us. We see it through the whole Exodus, right? Here, here in a little bit, when they cross the Jordan, God says, do what? Build an altar. Why? Because there's a generation that's going to come that says, what's that altar for? And you can tell them what I did for you. You say, yeah, the, the Israelites needed that. Why do, you think, why do you think God has set up something for the church called communion? Because we, folks, need a reminder. What, what do we do? What are we supposed to do before communion? Before we take communion, we do what? Examine our hearts. Right? The whole thing of communion is so we examine our hearts so that we realize what Christ has done for us and who we are. What does God know? God knows that we need reminders about who he is and how his grace is effective in our life and how it is working in our life. We need God. We need a reminder because it is too easy for us to just get lackadaisical in our walk with God and think that somehow everything that is going on in our life and everything that we're doing and everything that is happening is all on us. Especially when things are going well. God says, set this up. Thus Moses did. You might want to underline that. We're going to, we're going to see next week in chapter 20. Eight times in the book of Numbers, you will see Moses obeyed God. Moses did what God commanded him. And I just want to put that in your mind as you read, hopefully, for next week, chapters 20 and 21, that Moses is one time not going to do what God told him, and it's going to cost him. But Moses did it here, and the Lord commanded him, and he did. And the people of Israel said to Moses, Behold, we perish. We are undone. We are all undone. All of a sudden, God does this sign Here's the staff. It has almonds on it. They say, we are undone. The presence of God is obviously here. God is holy. We are sinful. We are undone. We are undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. They realize the greatness and holiness of God. They say, oh, we're going to die. 
We're going to die. And they say, ask this question, are we all to perish? We are in sin. Folks, when we see the greatness and the goodness and holiness of God, when all of a sudden we see that our rebellion against the leadership that he has set up over us is rebellion against God, when all of a sudden we see that God's grace is continually, continually, continually poured out on us, but we have seen from Genesis chapter 3 on that the result of sin is death. And all of a sudden, this reveals their heart is full of sin and rebellion against God, and they realize because my heart is full of sin and rebellions against God, I am going to die. Basically, they're saying we're all dead. There is no hope. And that's how the chapter ends. There's no hope. Are we all going to die? This is a generation, they are about to go into the promised land. This is a, almost the 40th year of wandering in the wilderness, and they're asking the question, we've heard the stories, the entire generation of the people that have rebelled against God are dead, they're not going in, are we all going to die? We are all rebellious, sinful people, and that's a great place for them to be, except that they've missed something, and God answers the question in verse 18, or chapter 18. So the Lord said to Aaron, you and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear the iniquity connected with the sanctuary. And you and your sons with you shall bear the iniquity connected with your priesthood. So here we go from this story. Here's Aaron. Here's his rod. They put it before this ark. The people all say, we're undone. We're all in our sin. Are we all going to die? And God, in his grace and his mercy, says, you aren't coming in here. But I'm going to give you what? A priest. And the priest's job was to do what? He was the mediator. He was the one that would be go before God. And what does it say to Aaron? What did he say to Aaron here? You and your sons and your father's house shall do what? Bear iniquity connected with the sanctuary. The answer to their question is yes, you are all going to die unless there is one that is going to enter the presence of God for you. You will die unless there is that one that will go and bear iniquity to you. You might as well take your Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 9 because we're going to be there a couple times here this morning and put a bookmark in it. But turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Like I said, I was going to fly over these two chapters, but man, I mean, it's just connected so well with the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 9, look at verse 11. Hebrews 9, 11, but when Christ appeared as, the, as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that, that is not of creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. What is he saying? We needed someone to go before God. Are we all going to die? Yes. Unless God in his grace provides one. Aaron, you're that person. And you're going in there to do what? Bear the iniquity of the people. He says it twice. You're going to bear the iniquity connected with the sanctuary. And you and your son shall bear the iniquity connected with the priesthood. And with you... Bring your brothers also, the tribe of Levi, the tribe of your father, that they may join you and minister to you while you and your sons with you are before the tent of testimony. And they shall keep guard over you and over the tent 
but shall not come near to the vessels of the sanctuary or to the altar, lest they and you die. The punishment for sin is always death. He says, Aaron, you're going to be... You're going to be this mediator. You're going to be the one that comes and bears the iniquity and comes before the presence of God, bearing the iniquity for this sinful people. But understand, you are not above death. The punishment for sin is death. He says, they shall join you in verse 4 and keep guard over the tent and all the service of the tent and no outsider shall come near you. And you shall keep guard over the sanctuary and over the altar that there may never again be wrath on the people of Israel. And behold, I have taken your brothers, the Levites, from among the people of Israel. They are a gift to you, given to the Lord to do service of the tent of meeting. And you and your sons with you shall guard your priesthood for all the concerns of the altar that is within the veil, and you shall serve. I give your priesthood as a gift, and any outsider shall come near shall be put to death. What did God say? I give you your priesthood as a gift. Here's the grace of God, folks. How many times have you heard people say, well, if God really loved people, there is no way that he would do what? He could ever send them to hell. If God was really a God of love, then, I mean, why do people die? Why would people die and go to hell? What God is saying here is, I am a God of love. And while I am holy and sin means that you will die, I have also provided a way the priesthood which is a gift to you. It is my grace to you that there is one that can enter the presence of God and make sacrifice for you. So that what? The wrath of God would not come upon you. Folks, listen. Numbers chapter 18 is pointing us straight to Christ. Hebrews chapter 9, there is one great high priest that has entered into the holy of holies, that has borne our iniquity so that the wrath of God would not come upon us. And he says to the Levites, this is the gift to you. This is the, this is the grace of the Levites coming, given from the Lord to do service in the tent of meeting. So we see here the the Levites are a sign of God's grace. The rest of 18 basically is looked at as tithe, how the Levites are provided for. Okay, and so he talks about how how they are supposed to give contributions, and you have this tithing, and here's how they meet the needs of the Levites. And then he gets to verse 32. And he's talking here, if you read 25 through 31, he's talking about and your contribution shall be counted to you as it were the grains on the threshing floor. He's talking about all this stuff about how the Levites are to be cared for and taken care of and what they have. And he gets to verse 32 and he says, And you shall bear no sin by reason of it when you have contributed the best. So he's, he's talked all this, all this rest of this chapter has been about what they have and what they're given and how their, their needs are met. And he ends and says this, But you shall not profane the holy things of the people of Israel, lest you die. Numbers is kind of a morbid book, right? Seems like every chapter they're talking about death. Yeah, you're going to die. Yeah, you're going to die. Yeah, you're going to die. He says here, but you shall not profane the holy things of the people of Israel, lest you die. Listen, Levites, 
Yes, you're a gift from God. Yes, God has gifted you to serve in his very presence. But understand this, even those that have been gifted to serve in the presence of God cannot come into the presence of God with sin. Lest you die. And then we get to chapter 19. And it's kind of just a weird chapter. It just doesn't fit anything else we've seen. And so we get there, and the Lord speaks speaks to Moses and Aaron, saying, This is a statute of the law that the Lord has commanded. Tell the people of Israel to bring you a red heifer without defect in which there is no blemish. Now, this is different than the sin offerings that we've seen. This is a totally different offering. So the notes that you have are all about chapter 19. And so I didn't want you getting writing down listing and get listing that you missed the point. Okay, so we're going to have seven things. And just just as a side note, I don't know that I wrote it on there, so you can write it on there. I might have failed to do this. But these, these points are from Legan Duncan. Okay, they are not Steve, so don't think I'm super smart. All right, um, these points are, are uh, Legan Duncan had these points on numbers 19. And so they're his points, hopefully, I can expound on them, and and we can work through them, but these are not mine. So don't come up afterwards and think I'm real smart, because I know that's throwing you off today. So um, this is from a real smart dude. It's just me preaching, all right? So, but the author here says, and the Lord speaks and says, here's the statute of law. Tell the people of Israel to bring you a red heifer without defect in which there is no blemish. And we have to ask the question, why did the author put this here? What is the point? I mean, this is, this is so, I mean, we're in, we're in the middle of this narrative about what is going on in Israel, and all of a sudden it's just, here, here's a new sacrifice. The Israelites have seen death, and we just saw the end of, verse, or end of chapter 18 that if you do profane the holy things, you are going to die. And folks, 40 years has passed. A generation of over a million people has died in the last So don't think, number one, the Israelites haven't seen death. It is a daily occurrence. Number two, if you go back just a chapter and a half, they did what? 14,700 people died from this plague. They have seen death. So God says, here's an offering. Here's a sacrifice. But interesting, this sacrifice involves a heifer. We have seen the other sacrifices that we've seen include a bull, okay, or a ram. Here we have this female cow, this heifer, okay, that is to be sacrificed. The other thing about this sacrifice that we see is the sacrifice is not done on the altar. You see here, it's brought without a blemish and has never had a yoke on it. Verse 3, and you shall give it to Eliezer, the priest, and it shall be taken outside the camp and slaughtered before him. So the the sacrifice is not even supposed to be taken and done on the altar. This is different than the other sin offerings that we have seen so far that were supposed to take place on the altar. And so here, not the high priest, Eliezer, Aaron's son, is supposed to take this heifer and take it outside the camp. And so the sacrifice is not to be done by the high priest, but this is a sin offering. Look at verse 9. And a man who is clean, shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place, and they shall be kept for the water, uh, kept for the water for the impurity of the congregation of the Israel. It is a sin offering. So we've seen a sin offering, but this is a different 
sin offering. But this sin offering is pointing us back to Genesis chapter 3. One of the results of the fall was death. Genesis 3, 9. You are going to die, right? And so we see this death. The, the, the idea of dust and even the idea of the, the water here that we're going to see, uh, the water of life, this living water, are two links that are taking us back to the to fall narrative. The, these people are going to return to dust, right? That's what God told Adam and Eve. From dust you came, dust you're going to return. But here we're going to see that dust is included in this. But also, as we've talked about, and even as we studied Numbers 4 and 5, God has also provided them a way to handle death. Okay, the nations around them, some of the, uh, the, the cults and the, the, the religious practices around them at the time, they worshiped and glorified death. God doesn't want these people focusing on death. Why? Because death is a result of the fall. It was not a result of the covenant that God had made with them. His covenant was a covenant of life, blessing. And if we get focused on death, guess what? We're going to miss what God is doing in his covenant. So God says... I don't want you focused on death. It's also helpful when you're walking around in the wilderness, as we talked in Numbers 4 and 5, for death not to be a thing that, even here as we're going to read this passage, they're not supposed to hang out in the tent with a dead person. Well, that's kind of morbid, but you think they've died. There's this mourning period, but anybody that hangs out in there, it is a, it marks you unclean. Okay, there needs to be a cleansing period. Why? Because you don't want a bunch of dead bodies laying around a camp. Obviously, bad things are going to happen. Okay? And so diseases and so forth. God is protecting them. But we see seven things here in this passage that I want to look at as we look at this sacrifice, this sin offering of the red heifer that points us to Christ. Let's continue reading verse 4. And Eliezer the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood toward the front of the tent of meeting seven times. And the heifer shall be burned in his sight, its skin, its flesh, its blood, its dung, it shall be burned. And the priest shall take the cedar wood and the hyssop and the scarlet yarn and throw them into the fire, burning the heifer. Then the priest shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he will come into the camp. But the priest shall be unclean until evening. The one who burns the heifer shall wash his clothes in water and bathe his his body in water and shall be unclean until evening. And a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place. And they shall be kept for the water of imp- for impurity for the congregation of the people of Israel. It is a sin offering. The one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. And this shall be a perpetual statute for the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. He shall cleanse himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day so... And so be clean. But if he does not cleanse himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not become clean. Whoever touches a dead person, the body of anyone who has died and does not cleanse himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from Israel because the water for impurity was not thrown on him. He shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. This is the law when someone dies in a tent. Everyone who comes into the tent and everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean seven days. And every open vessel that has no cover fastened on it is unclean. Whoever in the open field touches someone who was killed with a sword or who died naturally or touches a human bone or a grave shall be unclean seven days. For the unclean, they shall take some of the ashes of the burnt offering and fresh water shall be added in the vessel. Then a clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in water and sprinkle it on the tent and on all the furnishings and all the people 
who are there and on whoever touches the bone and the slain or the dead in the, or the grave. The clean person shall sprinkle it on the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day, and thus on the seventh day he shall cleanse him, and he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water, and at evening he shall be clean. And if the man who is unclean does not cleanse himself, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly, since he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. Because the water for impurity has not been thrown on him, he is unclean. And it shall be a statute forever for them. The one who sprinkles the water for impurity shall wash his clothes, and the one who touches the water for impurity shall be unclean until evening. And whatever the unclean person touches shall be unclean, and anyone who touches it shall be unclean until evening. Now everybody understands why I was thinking we would skip over very quickly chapter 19. Because you just listened to that and went, what? What does that have to do with us? Well, obviously the writer of Hebrews thought it had to do a lot with us. And so let's take a look at it. <clears throat> how does this heifer, this sin offering with this red heifer, how does this point us to Christ? Number one, the heifer was to be without spot or blemish. Purification was to be done with a heifer that had never been yoked. There was to be no blemish. And we've seen this in other sacrifices, so this is nothing new. There's to be no blemish. But here, as we've seen at the end of chapter 17 and at the chapter 18, these people realize that in our sin, we are going to die. If you come before God with impurity in your heart, you are unclean, you are going to die. So what could it be that would pay for our sin? First thing we see, this heifer. No spot. Not yoke, no blemish. Our sacrifice has got to be made by someone or some sacrifice that cannot have any impurity. It can have no blemish before God. Folks, that is why if you look around and you begin to talk with people that are part of cults or other religions, as Tony is going to tell us about this, this summer in his Sunday school class, listen, how is it that we think somehow we can work our way to God? If we have learned anything through these sacrifices, it said they cannot have blemish, and we are all in sin. That is why Peter wrote in 1, Corinthians, or in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold. You weren't ransomed with silver and gold. It, it, you can't pay enough money to be saved. But you're ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. First thing we see in this sin offering is that this red heifer is to be without blemish or spot. And that is pointing us to the one that would come and die in our place on that cross. The one that did not have sin, that did not have blemish, that did not have spot. He took our place. Second way that this sacrifice points us to Christ. A death in the past has a continuing effect later Interesting, most of the sacrifices, the other sacrifices that we have seen so far, have done what? They were an immediate impact, right? Immediate impact for sins that they have committed. Look at verse 9 here in Numbers 19. And a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place. 
And they shall be kept for the water for impurity for the congregation of the people of Israel. It is a sin offering. So here it is. They do this sacrifice. These ashes then are kept. Continually effect. Continuing effect. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Told you we'd go there. Numbers chapter 9, verse 12. He, being Christ, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing what? An eternal redemption this sacrifice in numbers chapter 19 is pointing us to christ because christ's sacrifice his death burial and resurrection has an eternal redemption and it has a continuous effect look at hebrews 9 26 for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world but as it is he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself We should be so ecstatic and so amazed that Christ's death, burial, and resurrection has an eternal redemption. It wasn't this just immediate for those that are behind, those that have already sinned. No, it covers all sin eternally for those that have been forgiven. We see here This sacrifice, this sin offering is a little different. It has a continuous effect. Number three. The only person that can do the sacrifice and administer the the cleansing effect is a clean person. Look at verse seven. Then the priest shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterwards he may come into the camp. But he's unclean until evening. And the one who burns the heifer shall wash his clothes. But look at verse nine. And a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes. Okay? A man who is clean shall gather up the ashes, and the one who gathers up the ashes shall wash his clothes, and then he is unclean. So what did they need? They needed one that would come and do the ritual of the sacrifice that would be clean. The author of Hebrews picks this up as he describes our high priest in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in whom every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Christ comes to make this sacrifice, and folks, he was tempted, but he did not sin. He is able to do the ceremony of the sacrifice. Why? Because he is clean. So we see here, as you read through this, those that are doing all this, they have to be clean. Christ was clean. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26 For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. And look at how it describes our high priest. Christ himself, the one that would come from heaven and die for us. That he would make intercession for us before the throne of God. Look at the description of it. He is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. That is our high priest. Why can he make intercession for us? Because he is holy. We are sinful. Number four, the remedy for uncleanness is costly. 
The remedy for uncleanness is costly. Verse 7, which we read over, the priest comes and he does this ceremony and he has to do what? Wash his clothes, bathe his body in water, and he, can't, he, he may come into the camp, but he can't, he's unclean until evening. Verse 8, the one who burns a heifer, washes clothes in water and bathes his body in wa- water and shall be unclean until the evening. Verse 10, the one who gathers the ashes shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. What is it saying? Folks, listen to me. The remedy for uncleanness is costly. The contamination process, everyone that comes in contact with it became unclean. And in this ritual of sacrifice, he would have to be unclean. He would have to wash his clothes. He would have to bathe. And he was unclean until evening, which meant he couldn't go where? He couldn't go into the presence of God. He was unclean. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, 21, For our sake you made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Listen, Christ came. Don't think for a minute that his sacrifice didn't cost him everything. It is costly. Everybody that comes in contact with it becomes unclean. Remember Numbers chapter 4 and 5 when we talked through that. What happened? Numbers 4 and 5. Dead people. Blood discharge. Leprosy. Touch it. Unclean. Jesus comes and what happens? He touches them. He doesn't become unclean. They become clean. It's costly. The priest would be unclean, and as unclean, he could no longer go into the tabernacle. He was separated from God. What happened on the cross? Matthew chapter 27, 46, ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Don't think for a minute, as we look at this sacrifice in Numbers chapter 19, don't think for a minute it didn't cost Jesus something. He hanging on that cross as God turns away and he faced the wrath of our sin on himself, separation from God. Why? Because he was a sinner? No, because we were, and he was willing to be that sacrificial lamb. He was willing to take our sins on us, on him, so that he could put his righteousness on us. It cost him everything. And as we look at Numbers 19, these, these the priests that were involved in this ceremony could no longer come into the presence. They were unclean for a time. Jesus, holy, innocent, Lord of the universe, separated that day. Presence of God as the wrath of God was poured out. It cost him everything. Number six. This heifer wasn't slain on the altar. Where did he where was he slain? Outside the camp. You know where we're going, right? Hebrews 13, 12 and 13. Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify 
the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. This heifer points us to Christ and the fact that he was slain outside the camp. And lastly, the heifer is significantly different from Christ. Though this sacrifice is pointing us to Christ, look at the difference. And, and the author of Hebrew makes this connection real quick. Turn to Numbers or to Hebrews chapter 9, and we're done. Let's read a couple of verses here, verse, nine, uh, verse 11. Hebrews 9, 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer, okay, the author of Hebrews making this connection, is the sprinkling of these, if, if these things wouldn't do what? Sanctify for the purification of flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who entered through the internal spirit, offer himself without blemish to God, purifying our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. His sacrifice offered himself without a blemish to God so that we might do what? Serve the living God, that we might live in a relationship with God, that we might approach the throne of God. Why? Because one came and sacrificed himself, one that was holy without blemish, took on himself our sin outside the camp, and he was sacrificed so that what? We could approach the living God. Then how could we not go and live for him? As we are pointed to the cross and we are pointed to the sacrifice of Christ, then how come we resort to so many tactics of the Israelites in the wilderness? Grumbling, complaining, Christ took all those things on himself. Folks, Numbers 19 points us directly to Christ. Every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around. Maybe there's someone here this morning that say, you know what, Steve? I've never accepted the gift that Christ gave that day on the cross. I'm out in the wilderness. And I know, like the Israelites at the end of chapter 17, that if I were to stand before the judge, I am guilty. I should die. But Steve, today I realize God's grace and God's gift is that he's given us one that would go into God's very presence would be the mediator for us. He gave us one that was the sacrifice to pay for those sins. Somebody here that say, you know what, Steve? Would you pray for me? I need to be saved. I need to accept the gift of salvation. Then I have to ask this question, folks. How do our lives reflect 
the sacrifice that was made for us? Are we serving the living God because of the sacrifice that Christ made? Or do our lives and our hearts and our attitudes reflect a whole lot more the people of Israel? Maybe today is the day that we get a glimpse of what Christ did. And it changes how we act, how we live 